If there's anything we can all agree on is that stories from other places around the world, aka outside of the United States, seem to captivate the audience a little bit more than others. Maybe it's just that we're not used to hearing folklore from, say, Japan, or from Korea, or anything like that. Well, tonight, we're going to be sharing some creepy, allegedly true, and downright strange stories from the country of Japan. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at SwampDweller.net, or the email you can find in the description down below. You can also submit them on Reddit at r slash thedarkswamp. I'd love to see your story and share it with everyone here in the swamp. Be sure to hit that like button, subscribe if you're new, and let's get ready for some creepy and allegedly true creepy stories from Japan. You know, swamp folk, it can be a dangerous job going out there boxing homeless alligators like I do. And, you know, sometimes I can sustain injuries while out on the job. Whether it's stubbing my toe on one of those dastardly palm trees, or getting sneak attacked by a homeless alligator who's looking to tickle my left big toe, you never know what's gonna come at you in the workplace. If you're ever injured, you need to check out Morgan & Morgan. Morgan & Morgan is America's largest injury law firm. They have over 100 offices nationwide and more than 800 lawyers. With over $15 billion recovered for clients, Morgan & Morgan has proven track record of fighting to get you full and fair compensation. Submitting an injury claim with Morgan & Morgan is so easy, it's more like using an app than hiring a lawyer. With Morgan & Morgan, you can submit a claim without ever having to leave the couch. In 8 clicks or less, you can submit a claim to Morgan & Morgan. If you're ever injured, you can check out Morgan & Morgan. Their fee is free unless they win. For more information, go to forthepeople.com slash swamped or dial pound 529 from your cell phone. That's forthepeople.com slash swamped or pound 529 from your cell phone. This is a paid advertisement. The Japan Stalker by Anonymous. I'm a 25-year-old woman, and I've been living in Japan for a couple of years now. It's a beautiful country, truly. Every bit as fascinating and alien as I imagine. But I have one major complaint. In rural areas where foreigners are a rarity, Japanese men can become slightly obsessive regarding foreign girls. Particularly fair-haired, blue-eyed girls like me. I've dealt with quite a few situations where I was way beyond uncomfortable. Even one or two where I feared I might be abducted or even worse. One such encounter occurred a few years back when I was in the third year of my university course. The following was a very brief encounter, but a terrifying one nonetheless. I was studying abroad at a school in Saitama, a suburb of Tokyo only 15 miles away from the capital city center. I was meeting many new people, making many new friends, practicing Japanese, and generally having the time of my life. One day, after classes were finished, my friends invited me to shop at a local supermarket to get things for a nabe party. Nabe is a potluck dinner for those who don't know. You get some fresh vegetables and cuts of meat, then put it in a big pot on a little gas burner before everyone gathers and eats together. It's a huge part of traditional Japanese culture and a tremendous socializing thing. I was over the moon that they invited me. I was usually left out of these things at first because I was an outsider, whereas they had known each other since their freshman year. Though we had been singing together over the past few months, they had grown to be like family to me, 
each like an overprotective big brother, especially a guy named Shinji. He was short and a bit on the heavy side, but he was highly charismatic. Whenever he saw me fumbling around nervous or confused, he'd quickly appear by my side and throw a heavy arm around my shoulder, asking, What's the problem, Jamie? We all went to our friend's house for the party and drank and talked until pretty late. I checked my phone at one point to discover that it was already 4 in the morning and my battery was dying. The guys had already decided they would sleep for a few hours until the train started back up, but I was only about a 30 minute walk away from my shared apartment. I announced that I was leaving and started packing my stuff up. Sinji offered to walk me home, but I politely declined the offer. It would be sunrise soon, it wasn't all that far, and I would definitely make it to the station safely, right? Only to see a single car parked outside with a man I didn't recognize leaning up against it. He was staring at me. He was much older than me, in his mid-30s or even early 40s. His head turned watching me as I approached the station. I began picking up my pace a little crossing to the other side of the street to avoid him as best as possible but I heard the car door slam and the engine start up. Headlights illuminated me, and he turned to drive alongside where I was walking. His window rolled down. Good morning, Gaijin, he said in Japanese. Gaijin means foreigner. You're walking alone, huh? No, I'm going to be meeting with some friends soon, I replied politely. My word, you speak excellent Japanese. Where are you going? I started walking faster, pretending not to hear his last question. You're wonderful. Can I get your phone number? He asked. I have a boyfriend. It was a lie, but I didn't know what else to say. He proceeded to drive, and I figured he had given up. But then he suddenly pulled his car over up ahead, just before I could get away, opened the driver's door, and got out. Let's go home together. He repeated a little more vehemently, taking a few steps toward me on the sidewalk. I panicked, immediately sprinting into a nearby park. There were only a handful of entrances and exits, all of which a car could not enter thanks to the somewhat well-placed ballards. I pulled out my phone and immediately called Sinji. Just my luck though he didn't answer. He was probably passed out, still drunk on weak Japanese beer. I tried the rest of my group and no one was answering. I looked out the next exit just in time to see the car crawl by slowly. He was still searching for me. Trembling in fear, I tried to unsuccessfully reach the guys over and over again. Just as I was about to cry, my phone lit up dimly with a call from Sinji. What's the problem, Jamie? He said jokingly. I had never been so glad to hear those words. In a flurry of comments, I explained to him that I was potentially in serious trouble. Though he didn't say a word the entire time, I could practically hear the smile leave his face. In a tone so severe, it was almost weird to hear it coming from him. He told me to stay where I was and that he was on the way. But I was already a 20 minute walk away and I wasn't sure I had 20 minutes before this guy parked his car and came to look for me on foot. I looked behind me again just in time to see him drive by the exit slowly, looking through. I don't have time. I'm going to make a break for it the next chance I get, I explained. No, he said. Wait for me. I'll be there as soon as I can. I'll run. But Sinji wasn't a runner by uh, any stretch of the imagination. There was no way he could get there any faster than I could. He started to say something more, but my phone suddenly went dark. My phone battery had finally died. There was no turning back now. I waited a couple of seconds and he was right on schedule. He crawled by the exit, then stopped, waiting for his moment to pounce. My heart was pounding so hard I could hear it thumping in my chest. 
The sun was beginning to come up now and he had a better view of me. It was now or never. He slowly crept forward. I moved out of sight of my hiding spot and moved toward the exit. I poked my head out and saw him turn the corner. I sprinted toward my house and didn't look back. He may have seen me, and I was too fast to follow or something, but I didn't see the guy again. I immediately put my phone in the charger, called the guys back to let them know I was okay, but Shinji never let me walk home again after that. The Miyazawa Tragedy by Anonymous In the year 2000, on the morning of New Year's Eve, Japanese grandmother Asahi Gaino traveled over to her daughter's house in the Setagaya ward of western Tokyo to celebrate the coming of the new year. Unlike many other East Asian cultures, the official Japanese New Year has been observed according to the Gregorian calendar on January 1st of each year, as has been tradition since the year 1873. Asahi looked forward to these New Year visits, you know, they were great for them, which usually involved her grandchildren partaking in these Japanese traditions of New Year's kite flying known as before the family sat down together to watch the final of the Emperor's Cup, the National Association Football Elimination Tournament. She had called ahead to confirm the visit, but was surprised that her calls couldn't be patched through. This was highly unusual. Her daughter's family was financially stable and always paid their phone bill on time. So naturally, she became suspicious and headed over to the house a few hours earlier than planned. Upon entering the residence, Asahi noticed that it was hushed. She called out to her family, but they were still waiting for a reply from them. There were signs of activity in the kitchen and around the family computer. Someone had not only eaten there recently, but had also used the computer to surf the internet. But Asahi didn't start to worry until she saw that someone had wrenched the phone line from the wall socket, so it was broken off entirely. Feelings of dread began to build in her as she climbed the first floor stairs and peered into the family bedrooms. And when she laid her eyes on the scenes that greeted her, she unleashed a blood-curdling scream so loud that the occupants of neighboring houses heard and quickly called the police. Her family had been murdered. A grisly scene greeted the police officers that rushed to the residence. There, they discovered the corpses of 44-year-old Makio Miyazawa, his 41-year-old wife, Yasuko, and their children, Nina and Rei, who were eight and six respectively. Three of the corpses were soaked with blood except Ray's who had been strangled in his sleep. Police quickly determined that whoever had slain the family had gained access to the house at some time around 11.30pm the previous evening. They had climbed a tree to the rear of the house before carefully removing a window screen, after which they had free access to the bedroom of the sleeping Ray. Despite succumbing to the asphyxiation inflicted by the killer, Ray seems to have raised up enough of an alarm for his father, Mikio, to rush up the stairs to confront his son's murderer. Shocked and enraged by the horrifying sight that greeted him, Mikio set upon the killer in a vengeful rage and managed to injure his son's attacker before losing his balance. The killer then gained the upper hand and tried to stab Mikio in the head with a sashimi knife, a blade used to prepare sushi. Mikio 
was spiked in the head with such force that part of the blade snapped off inside of his skull, and the killer was forced to slay the family's females with a broken knife, still soaked in their father's blood. In a country where murder rate is relatively low, news of the murder shocked the Japanese public and caused national outrage. So much so that Takeshi Tushida, the chief of the Saiho police station, was placed in charge of all investigations into the murders and remained in place until his retirement. The study that it followed was one of the largest ever taken in the history of Japanese law enforcement. It involved almost a quarter of a million investigating officers who collected and filed over 12,000 pieces of evidence. The killer's behavior was brutal, ruthless, and horrifying, but it was his apparent actions following the murder that made the police so confused. Instead of fleeing the scene, the killer seemingly spent the next eight hours or simply hanging around the Miyazawa family's home. After treating their injuries using medical supplies found in the family's bathroom, the killer helped themselves to some barley tea, fresh melon, and some ice cream from the kitchen's freezer unit. Then, after using the house's toilet to relieve themselves, the killer used the family's computer for several hours before actually taking a nap on the living room couch before seeing themselves out. Analysis of the family's computer revealed it had connected to the internet at 1am shortly after the family was murdered and the killer had eaten. It had also connected to the internet around 10am the same morning, meaning Asahi Gaino had arrived at the house maybe only an hour after the killer had departed. One thing was clear before any severe investigation had taken place though. The police were dealing with a highly dangerous psychopath who was not only so detached from their crimes that they could stomach food in the immediate aftermath, but so callous that they could take a nap after having murdered two children and their parents. The subsequent police investigation revealed several oddly specific things about the family's killer. Physically, the killer was estimated to be around 170 centimeters tall and of a slender, athletic build. Police also deduced that the killer was 15 to 35 years old at the time of the incident due to the physical strength required to scale the tree at the back of the Miyazawa's house. After analyzing fecal matter taken from the Miyazawa's bathroom that belonged to the killer, police determined that they had eaten string beans and sesame seeds the previous day. They also discovered that the killer had left their blood-stained clothes in the father's bedroom after changing into some of the clean clothes he took from them, probably to avoid raising suspicion as he escaped the scene. Analyzing the killer's sweater, they not only learned that it had been bought from a store in the Kanagawa prefecture, but that only 130 of that particular item were ever made, and it was a pretty exclusive piece of clothing and didn't come cheap. Therefore, the killer must have been employed at a farewell-paying job and or at least had an interest in fashion. But perhaps the most exciting detail gleaned from the investigation was that trace amounts of sand were found inside the hip bag of the killer left abandoned at the scene. These were sent to a laboratory for analysis where forensic scientists concluded that they had come from the Nevada desert, specifically the area around Edwards Air Force Base in specifically the area around Edwards Air Force Base in California. 
This fueled speculation that the murderer was either an American serviceman or had at least visited the site during the previous few years. Analysis of the killer's DNA and fingerprints also fueled speculation that a foreigner committed the murder. Neither the DNA nor the fingerprints matched any of the records of Tokyo police, which could have simply meant the killer had no previous criminal description. However, analysis of the type A blood found at the scene revealed that the killer was male. It indicated that the ancestry was that of a southern European country that bordered the Mediterranean or the Adriatic Seas. This discovery led the Tokyo Metropolitan Police to seek help from the International Criminal Police Organization as it was possible that the killer was no longer present in Japan and had escaped the country following the brutal murders. This would explain why, after such a thorough and widespread investigation, no single person was ever charged with the murders. In 2019, it was reported that nearly 35 officers were still assigned to the case, hoping to one day finally solve some of the most widely publicized murders in Japanese history, and every year since the murders, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department makes an annual pilgrimage to the house for the memorial ceremonies to commemorate the crime and ask forgiveness that they have failed to discover the killer's identity and bring them to justice. We can only hope that one day the murderer is caught and punished for the horrific crimes they committed. But with every year that goes by, this outcome seems less and less likely. I found something disturbing in Akigahara Forest by Paige Turner. Hello, Swamp Dweller. It's strange to finally write this after months of meticulously crafting the perfect letter with which to grab your attention, but sadly those hours were in vain. It's impossible to express the entirety of what happened without including some rather embarrassing details, but I can't keep this to myself any longer. Hopefully, you can see past my mistakes and consider reading this to your viewers. There is no defense for my intentions, but I would like to conclude this preface by saying that I am a different person now. My name is Parker, and I'm a 21-year-old manic depressive, bipolar college dropout. I'm also a snob and an all-around asshole. This isn't a cry for help, it's an explanation. You see, I've been coming to the swamp since 2018. It's one of a few pleasures in my pathetic life. Any tale where someone suffers more than myself is a treat. But here, I don't know, there's something special about the atmosphere. I've nearly convinced myself I'm visiting a real place. Did I cross a line from a loyal fan to obsessive psycho? Probably, but listen to my whole story before passing judgment. Eventually, listening wasn't enough anymore. I wanted to keep the show going daily, to hear my words shared with everyone here in the swamp. The problem, I was a boring nobody, and apparently so was my family. There wasn't a single haunting or a stalker among us. Finally, I decided to create a work of fiction. But they were dull, and even if you read them, they'd be immediately forgotten. No, if I was going to lie, it was going to be something memorable. After trashing a dozen or more drafts, the entire world stopped. My sister died, and I experienced real pain. The previous depressions were nothing compared to the new torments of daily life. Leslie 
was walking to her car after work when some shitbag just grabbed her. But that's not the story I'm here to tell. It's only the catalyst. I've always wanted to die. Not in a I can't take it anymore dramatic way, in a this is pointless and I don't want a passive type of way. After Leslie, it became the bad kind. Wanting justice kept me going at first, but when the shitbag went down shooting, that was gone too. There's a calmness that comes with the decision to die. The pain finally stops because it doesn't matter anymore. It felt like my mind was clear for the first time, and I understood exactly what I wanted to do. Opening a new dock, my fingers danced over the keys as words practically wrote themselves. In minutes, three perfect paragraphs introduced myself as an adventurous hiking enthusiast. I explained my love for this channel and my lifelong desire to visit Akigahara, Japan's suicide forest. It was far from finished, but a beautiful beginning. Next, I bought a plane ticket, a round trip to support my claims. I got a passport and packed my bags. The plan was nearly flawless. I would write of my daring adventures, and when the audience was captivated with my unbelievable discoveries, I would deliver the clincher. The returning tomorrow will update soon. Of course, that was never going to happen. Later, when my body was discovered, well, you get the idea. There was a chance details about my true personality would surface, but most people want the mystery. They'll overlook a few discrepancies in the story if it's good enough, and I thought mine was. I researched the area to ensure no claims contradicted the legends too much and found the subject fascinating. In 2003, a record-breaking 105 bodies were discovered. In 2010, over 200 suicide attempts were made. Due to the drastic increases, they won't release the numbers anymore. In the year 864, Mount Fuji erupted, and where the lava flowed, Akigahara eventually grew. Halfway up the mountain, one can see the forest from high above the treetops. The breathtaking view is the reason it was named Yukai, or Sea of Trees. Unfortunately, the surrounding villages were poor and starving. It was common for families to abandon their elderly in the woods and call it mercy. Many of them committed suicide rather than face weeks of starvation and exposure. This brings us to the Onyo, a vengeful spirit capable of causing physical harm. Many claim these malevolent beings are responsible for most, if not all, of the forest deaths and disappearances. Even experienced hikers tend to lose their way. Now, the public trail ends with no trespassing notices and warning signs. Those who are determined to die simply venture forth and do it. If they're unsure, they tie a ribbon in the trees to guide their possible return. Sometimes, locals volunteer to perform suicide checks and know what it means to find one of those trails. In case you're wondering, I took camping gear, but only to support future claims. We can skip the Swank Hotel, weird toilets, and actual trauma of public transportation. I'd rather jump to where fantasy and reality diverged. Once I learned what it was like to travel in a crowded city, I knew multiple trips were out of the question. Instead, I took everything on the first day. Finding reception at the bottom of the mountain seemed preferable to another round trip. Plus, it fit my narrative better. I was just camping, but things were so scary I came down to send this. At least, that's what I told myself. It wouldn't matter why I went back afterwards. 
People always make dumb decisions in those situations. Let everyone speculate I forgot something, or maybe I was forced. The important thing was to steer them away from suicide. I don't care what went in its place. Onyal, Yakuza, aliens, pick your poison. From the moment I arrived, things were more difficult than anticipated. The insects were drawn to me like they smelled a foreign delicacy in my blood, and the weight of my gear increased with every step. When the trail split in two, I stopped for a much-needed break. The signposts were in Japanese, but a passing elderly couple speak English well enough to help. They exchanged worried glances after noticing my tent. I insisted my interest only lay in camping, but it was doubtful that they believed me. I'm still in awe of the forest's beauty. It's amazing what nature can do when the trees aren't cut every 10 to 20 years. If you leave the trail, even before the forbidden zone, it's practically guaranteed you'll get lost. I stopped for a few more breaks along the way and reached the end in roughly two hours. A small barrier with numerous warnings offered no challenge in preventing my entry, but that's what marks the point of no return for so many. My first glimpse revealed tattered ribbons of all colors and sizes blowing in the breeze. I worried my line would be too easily seen if it started within view of the trail, but then noticed a uniquely shaped tree in the distance. Halfway there, a blue, uncut ribbon could be seen stretching into the dense foliage ahead. It inspired a combination of fear, curiosity, and regret. Turning back, I found a new landmark to the right. When sure no one was nearby, I started my own red lifeline. It was a solid hour before I found a suitable place for the tent. It was the lightest available, but as the clouds gathered overhead, the choice felt regrettable. Not checking the weather is a perfect example of the basic things I overlook in laziness. I set up between two huge trees and hoped the heavy rocks above me would help against the wind. There was nothing to do against flooding except hope it didn't happen. It wasn't until resting inside that I heard the sporadic patter of raindrops and realized the trees blocked most of it. Luckily, it never rained hard enough to be more than a nuisance, but the soothing sounds lulled me to sleep. Nightmares are a common theme in the forest legend, but that's true for most haunted places. Regardless, bad dreams are ineffective threats against those of us intimately familiar with night terrors, as long as we realize we're sleeping. One moment, I was resting comfortably. The next, footsteps were crunching in the distance. I rose to look outside, fully expecting a bear or a deer. My ears couldn't discern how many legs it walked on, just that it was heavy. The sound stopped instantly when I unzipped the flap. Taking a few cautious steps forward, I scanned my surroundings. It was then that I realized Akigahara was a serial killer's paradise, but it was too late for new worries. Besides, I was there to die. If someone wanted to help, why complain? I turned and felt urine stream down my leg. Standing not five feet behind my tent was the elderly couple from before. Except now, they look like zombies. They weren't ghostly apparitions but solid bodies. Their faces were chalk white and peeling. The woman's neck had jagged red slashes, and her husband was missing a portion of his skull. With a sickly rotten smile, the man, in perfect English, asked, Are you sure you're only here to camp? Is there anything you'd like to talk about? We're wonderful listeners. As he spoke, they advanced from both sides, 
and I stumbled backwards. Oh, don't be frightened, dear, his wife added. We only want to help. We have a grandson your age, or we did, until he left us to rot. The sorry, selfish bastard. Her voice became deeper with every word until it no longer resembled a woman's. I retreated faster and soon fell flat onto my back. Twisted roots and rocks jabbed painfully into my skin, but there was no time to stop for the stars dancing in my vision. The couple's approach grew louder with each step, and their cold iron grips could come at any second. I flailed, desperately propelling myself backwards, but my clothes snagged in several places. Finally, when I thought my heart would fail from pure terror, I jolted awake with a loud clap of thunder. Outside in the cool, fresh air, I noticed my clothes were soaked in sweat. Once changed, I started a fire and wondered at the possibility of staying awake for the rest of my life. Having one of those dreams at night was something to avoid. Phantom pain lingered from the imaginary fall. But as a lifelong hypochondriac, I've learned to ignore most aches and ailments. In a blatant act of rebellion, my brain showed me awful things waiting in the forest, creeping closer by the minute. I didn't care about the story anymore. I was trapped. If I fled in the dark, every branch would be fingers, every animal would be demons, and every cold breeze could be the reaper's breath. Shadows darted about in the corner of my eye, but I was paralyzed. The trance was only broken when a figure suddenly lunged into the clearing. I turned my head in time to catch a glimpse of a pale, angry woman before she vanished. Taking advantage of my regained mobility, I dove into the tent. I felt a cold certainty. That's what they wanted, but my anxiety grew in tandem with the darkness. Staying outside was not an option. I felt naked and exposed. Countless eyes were watching, waiting. But for what? The whispers hinted suicide, but I wasn't ready to admit I heard them yet. Things were almost calm during the first hour. Writing seemed like a good distraction, but it was difficult to focus. It wasn't until accidentally dozing that I heard real footsteps. Several. The firelight cast tall, exaggerated shadows onto the tent, and they grew taller with every step. There were at least six, maybe even more. I thought they would force their way inside, but they circled me like vultures. Round and round they went, slowly, never stopping or talking, but occasionally they showed me things. I could hear, smell, and feel everything. Most husbands granted their wives quick, painless deaths before committing suicide, but sometimes they tried to survive out there. Either way, death always came, and the men were always furious when it did. Their rage and hate poured into the land, strengthened its curse with every fresh infusion of fury. What's interesting is how the same children who left them on the mountain were in turn abandoned by their own offspring years later. The Onyo never forgot, and their sons were greeted accordingly. The practice of abandoning the weak may have ended, but its victims remain and they hate us, all of us. The visions continued until all meaning of time was lost. My head ached and my eyes grew heavier with each passing minute. I had drifted off for only a moment when the sound of tearing fabric startled me. Inches away from my ear, a long black fingernail poked through a small hole and I screamed in surprise. The finger was immediately replaced by a glazed blue eye. Gripped by panic, I leapt away from the tear, covered it with my pack, and sobbed as the circling footsteps resumed. 
I stayed that way until dawn, when all fell gloriously silent. There were no retreating footsteps into the forest. They vanished mid-stride as if never there. I opened the flap wide enough for a peek but saw nothing. The gray light of the morning filled me with renewed determination. It was imperative to finish my business before sunset, but I was no longer sure what that entailed. Not wanting to trust any decision made under duress, I reassessed my situation from the beginning. The real doubts began with my letter to you, Mr. Dweller. It was nothing compared to the nightmare of reality. After much soul-searching, the file went into the trash bin where it belonged. When I decided to visit Akigahara, no part of me expected to witness any form of supernatural activity. Now that I had, I would practically be a criminal not to share it with the swamp, right? Admitting I might want to live was too scary. That would mean returning to my miserable existence of everyday life. But it was easier to postpone the suicide rather than cancel. But my priority was getting the hell out of the forest. My gear was packed in 10 minutes, and leaving the tent behind was an easy decision. No matter how long I lived, there would be no more camping in my future. Following my red line back to its starting point, I remembered the stranger's blue ribbon. My intention was to take a few pictures for the story, but then it was clearly older than I had first assumed. The chances of finding a corpse at the other end were extremely high. Seeing a dead body would bother me half as much as a living person would, to be honest. I could be like the YouTubers and claim it was to give closure to a grieving family, or that it was the right thing to do, but I was chasing a story. After 20 minutes, the sound of rushing water alerted me to a stream beyond the cliffside, and the terrain was much better for walking. The forest beauty made it easier to forget about the previous night's terror and the morbidity of the current objective. Lost in another fantasy, I wandered past the ribbon and into an old campsite. A gray tent that was flattened beneath a large tree limb, and personal effects were scattered throughout the area. Initially, I worried a person was inside that tent when it was crushed, but that wasn't the case. After a brief inspection of the belongings, I noticed a yellow ribbon leading further into the woods. The dead woman was at the end of a much shorter hike. She'd been there long enough for the rope to eat through her decomposing neck. The noose still hung from the tree, but her head and body lay separately on the ground. Taking a picture was horrible, but no one would believe me without evidence. Her icy dead stare gave me chills. I couldn't look directly at her, only through the camera. With my finger over the button, I took a few more steps and waited for the zoo. And when the shot came into focus, I screamed hard and fell on my ass. The woman's face was back to normal, her lips slightly parted, in a way that she could be described as smiling. Yet, when the picture came into focus, that's exactly what she was doing. Her terrifying grin stretched ear to ear, her lips were blood red and her eyes were suddenly aware and full of hatred. I couldn't take my eyes off her, or she might make that face again, and I desperately needed that picture. After several minutes spent blindly running my hands over the ground, I finally found it. The sad and broken remains of my phone only displayed the soft glow of nothingness. We cast forward past my tantrum. Without a phone, there was no way to judge time, but I knew it was early enough to be safely locked in my hotel room before nightfall. When retracing my steps through the ruined campsite, I heard a strange, gargled cry like someone was drowning, and instinctively ran towards the sound. 
Looking down from the cliff's edge, I froze at the sight below. It wasn't water flowing through the stream, but blood and bone. Skulls littered the banks, and spines stretched far beyond my sight. My head began to spin, and I sank to my knees knowing another vision would soon assault my senses. Countless people jumped from that very spot, and countless more were all pushed. I watched them in an endless loop. So many people, just like me, were surrounded by a horde of ghoulish figures taunting them and poking them until they fell. Death was not always instant. Some only suffered broken bones. Those begged for help until their heads sank below the surface. They were the same gargled cries which led me in the first place. I only returned to my senses when leaning forward, hovering at the tripping point. It was my own doing, but not my subconscious. I only returned to my senses when leaning forward, hovering at the tipping point. It was my own doing, but not my conscious doing. It required all my willpower to carefully lean back and avoid panicked movements. When there was a comfortable amount of distance between myself and the cliff, thunder boomed overhead, and the sky was quickly growing dark. That's when I remembered my laptop. It had a clock, but with a little luck, my phone would appear on the Wi-Fi options. At first, I assumed it must be on American time, because why else would it say 5.15pm? The battery was over half full, but the power died when I opened the Wi-Fi settings. When pressing the power button, the light blinked and died. If it was almost 6pm, that meant I missed the sun's entire journey across the sky while I was... what? What could account for so much time? I had done nothing but walk. The answer hit me, and I almost lost a little food in my stomach. It hadn't felt long at the river, but my muscles were weirdly stiff when I returned to my senses, as if confirming my worst fear. The bottom of the sun dipped just behind the mountain's back, and the long shadow fell across the land. That's when the whispers returned, but it was hard to distinguish the outside voices from my own while crying in the dirt. Kill yourself now. Forget the story. You can't spend another night out here. No matter who said it, these words were true, and I couldn't help but agree with them. After repacking the computer and finding my flashlight, panic really consumed me. I ran without looking back. The headless woman would be there. There's no way to prove it, but she would. A painful stitch in my side soon forced me to stop. The flashlight definitely would not have enough battery to last all night, but I did not turn it on until it was pitch black. It should have enough power to make it to the public trail at least. The plan was to walk until the light dimmed, then start a fire next to the path. If nothing else, having a plan granted me several minutes of reassurance. I genuinely saw myself making it out of there and being a better person for it. Like one of those life-changing experiences you see in a movie where the main character is entirely a different person at the end. All I needed to do was walk back to the Blue Ribbon. Even I couldn't get lost in that short space between it and the public trail. The ribbon was gone. I followed it when fleeing the river, but it wasn't there anymore. As if answering my screams of frustration, a violent wind blew and a wall of dirt hit my skin like a thousand needles. Underneath the howling wind and crunching leaves, there was another sound. Whispers, floating to my ears off the cold breeze. They were secrets and knowledge, questions and answers, promises and threats, all for my ears alone. When the trees were calm once again, I opened my eyes 
in time to watch the last blue tatters fall to the ground. Instead of being consumed by terror, I felt relieved. The whispers were pleased, and so was I, but immediately upon that realization was the now familiar feeling of waking from a trance. Those feelings hadn't been my own, and the appropriate response to panic began in earnest. Thinking the trail must be close, I used the flashlight and kept moving in the same direction. Fun fact, walking in a straight line is impossible without a guide. You'll always make a circle. Feel free to Google it. I didn't believe it either, but it was an interesting read. I pointed the flashlight into the cluster of trees and took three deep breaths before proceeding. The light bounced with my unsteady movements and the whispers begged me to look for their faces, to follow them home. But if they were trying to lure me right, I needed to go left, and that's when the old couple returned. The moment the light fell on their rotting faces, I came to an abrupt halt, and they laughed at my fear. You'll think you'll wet his pants again? The man asked his wife. Oh, hush, that doesn't count. That was a dream, wasn't it? The woman teased. No telling. He was soaked clean through afterwards. Who knows what fluids came out of where? The husband answered, and they both laughed. My eyes only glanced away for a second, and my head never moved an inch. Yet, they halved the distance between us. Despite every conscious effort to avoid it, I yelped and fell once again. Standing no more than five feet away, they cackled maniacally while the whispers in my head turned to screams. There's only one way to end it, they warned. Consumed by panic, I struggled to my feet and ran around them while hopefully staying on course. When their wild, mocking laughter was gone, I slowed to catch my breath. Turning the flashlight off at that moment was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, but every second of power that that battery could have was precious. In the dark, my breaths were loud and jagged. It felt like the sound would carry on for miles. As my heart began to slow, a soft whisper spoke into my ear. So closely I felt breath on my neck. Come play with me. It was a child's voice that time, and before a chill ran down the length of my spine, small fingers brushed the tips of my own. I frantically fumbled with the flashlight, nearly dropping it before finding the switch. It was only on for a brief instant and immediately began to dim. As the beam slowly faded, faces began to appear between the trees watching and smiling. A whimper escaped my lips as I banged the flashlight against my palm, causing it to flare back to life for short spurts, only to immediately dim again. The pale faces in the forest blinked in and out of existence with the light, appearing closer with every flash, and the whispers promised, soon. Soon, my entire system shut down. I collapsed in between loud, racking sobs. I apologized for every horrible thing I had done to the spirits in life or after. Somewhere in the corner of my desperate brain, I remembered the only paragraph involving how to appease an Onyo. They want justice, for many reasons. That wasn't feasible here, not in the traditional sense. But I promised to share their story with as many others as possible. Then I repeated it a second time. Part of me hoped that if I kept talking, I wouldn't feel hands reaching from the darkness. The words did nothing to appease the Onyo, but something appreciated the sentiment. The next time the light roared to life, it stayed on. Most of the faces were gone, and the ones that remained were beyond the beam's reach. Reaching unsteadily to my feet, I was surprised to see the clouds had parted. The moon and stars were shining brightly. I wasn't foolish enough to let my guard down. There was still a heavy tension in the air, but it was possible to breathe again. 
Forcing myself to move slowly, I turned in a circle, hoping to see anything familiar. On my third pass, I finally saw it. The end of a blue ribbon tied around a tree. The rest was torn away, but that one beautiful scrap remained. I ran to it. The possibility it would vanish was all too real. Halfway there, a cold steel hand clamped around my ankle, and I face-planted, hard. If not for the mouthful of dirt and leaves, my scream would have surely woken the dead, though, to be fair, most were already awake. As I tried to roll over, a heavy weight fell onto me. It felt like a knee was pressing into the center of my back with two hands on my shoulders. My terror was complete. I could not move or think. No air was getting through, and my vision was going black, but everything was just blank. I thought the distant voices were hallucinations until whatever held me down suddenly vanished with the appearance of multiple flashlights. Fortunately, the hotel manager was always suspicious of my reasons for camping at Akigahara. When I hadn't returned that day, he reported me as missing, and the officials refused to start the search until morning. But the manager said that he had a bad feeling. He and his friends with a few locals who volunteered there all came out and looked immediately. So yeah, I definitely owe that guy my life. There's a lot I'll never know about what actually happens out here, but I've been thinking about it ever since. You know, what you believe is up to you, but I have a theory. Suicide was viewed differently in Japanese culture. In the feudal era, the act of seppuku was an honorable way to take one's own life. It was often carried out with a short blade to the abdomen, ensuring an especially agonizing death by disembowelment. There were a variety of reasons, usually to restore lost honor or to prove one's loyalty. But the important thing is, it wasn't the shameful, cowardly act most Americans view it as. They had a special name and honor traditions to show it was not for the weak. Many poor souls were happy to die. They saw it as putting extra food in their children's mouths and freeing their caretakers from an unnecessary burden. They expected their sacrifice to be honored and remembered, not forgotten on the mountain with their rotting corpse. So I promised to remember, to pass their story on to all who would hear it. I think that's why some decided to let me leave, not out of kindness or mercy, but a desperation to be known. I'm not sure if that conveys the profound life lessons I've learned, but if nothing else, please try to be less judgmental towards others. Not everyone is raised with the same ideals or opportunities, but we all bleed. Anyway, that's my story. Even if you don't use it for the channel, I don't care. The fact that you saw it is plenty. Most importantly, thanks for all the shitty nights you've gotten me through. Whether you know it or not, I think you might have saved a few lives when you started this channel. It's not just that you provide quality content, or entertainment, it's that you include all of us in every episode. You've created a second home where all of our friends are welcome, like family. I hope you know that. Strange Girl in Japan by Rahodai This happened in August 2019 while I was visiting my cousin and friends in Yokohama. I was 19 years old at the time. I was on my way back from my friend's apartment to my cousin's place where I was staying. It was close enough so I decided to walk. Despite it already being dark and late outside, I was rather close to Yokohama Harbor, walking on the pathway right next to the water. 
In the distance, I noticed a figure standing next to the railing, staring out to the sea. There was nobody else around, and I got a strange feeling from them, but I had to pass them regardless. The figure didn't seem to move when I got close. For some reason, I stopped to look at them when I was right behind. The person was wearing a black trench coat reaching past their knees and had their hands tucked in its pockets. While I was staring at them, they turned around to look at me. The street lamps provided a good light and I was standing close enough to make out their features. It was a girl, clearly foreign, and the first thing I noticed was how absolutely beautiful she was. Rather tall, maybe around 5'8", dressed in modern, entirely black clothes, and dark wavy hair reaching their shoulders. She was young, couldn't be any older than 18, maybe even younger. My gaze lingered on her eyes and a chill went down my spine. They were light but completely empty. It was like looking into a void. She stared at me. Her expression was blank. It didn't change since she had turned to look at me, but I had a feeling that she was waiting for me to do or say something. I tried, but I couldn't find the words. I was frozen in place. We stared at each other for quite some time, until at some moment I blinked and she disappeared. There was nowhere she could have gone. She just vanished into thin air. Absolutely horrified, I hurried to my cousin's apartment. When he saw me, he pointed out that I looked white as a sheet, but hearing my story, he just laughed and thought that I hallucinated some sort of hot girl. I researched Japanese urban legends out of curiosity, but I couldn't find anything about a young girl wearing a trench coat. She didn't even look like a ghost. It was like something that a normal human being would be doing. A few days later, while my cousin and I were on our way back to his apartment, something on the other side of the street caught my eye. I looked, and in the shadow of a back alley leaning against a wall was that same girl, still dressed in black wearing a coat. She was clearly looking at me. Her expression was the same as the same before, blank and maybe just a little bit bored. I shook my cousin's shoulder and told him to look, but when he did, she was already gone. Once again, just vanished into thin air. For the rest of my stay, I had a feeling that someone was watching me whenever I went outside, and sometimes I could see the black coat in the crowd. I could have just had paranoia, but I was seriously afraid. When I came back home, that feeling stopped, and nothing weird ever happened again. Does anybody have any idea what could have been going on? College Exchange Horror by Anonymous A few years back, I was taking part in a college exchange for six months, where myself and a Japanese student swapped places to get a taste of life in each country. It was honestly one of the most incredible experiences of my life. Japan is weird by Western standards, but it's also full of some of the most wonderful, gracious people I have ever met in my life. The way they think about life, even down to some minute details, is as fascinating as it is thoughtful, and going over there changed my life for the better. But something happened on a flight home from Japan, and although it didn't mar my experience entirely, it left a huge black stain on what should have been a very fond memory. The flight home was a long one, a very long one, like nine and a half hours, followed by another ten hour flight. It's not easy just sitting there for that long. I'm sure many of you know that. It feels very claustrophobic, constrictive, and the fact that you really can't relax is just horrible. 
I suppose that's why people pop pills or something, or maybe plow those little mini bottles of liquor just to gain some semblance of relaxation. So, I'm in the middle of the second flight. This one is about eight or nine hours. That's going from Southern California to my hometown of Newark. I'd worked my way through most of the in-flight movies, and I'm sort of half watching this dumb sci-fi thing with Tom Cruise when I hear something over my headphones. I slide them off my head to hear the woman, a few rows ahead of me, getting all panicky in a foreign language. I'm no expert, but I'm almost certain it was Chinese, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, she's clearly very frightened or upset about something, and keeps hammering on the little button above her head that summons a flight attendant. A flight attendant comes by, trying to be as calm as possible, but obviously can't understand what the woman is saying because of the language barrier. It takes a moment or two for the woman to find some medium of communication, and then I watch as the flight attendant kind of leans into the middle of the seats for a moment before jolting back up and rushing down the aisle with a look of horror on her face. Moments later, she emerges, calling out something I'd only ever heard in bad movies up until that point. Is there a doctor on the plane? Are there any medical professionals on the flight? That's when I knew the situation was serious, that it wasn't just some poor Asian lady having a panic attack or something. The look on the attendant's face had told me everything, but this just made everything concrete. Something terrible had happened in the middle of those seats. Eventually, the flight attendant emerges from the business class section of the plane with a professional-looking man in a polo shirt, white hair and glasses. This was obviously an English-speaking doctor she'd managed to find. He does the same thing the flight attendant did at first, leans in obviously and gives the man a brief examination before suddenly bursting into action. He looks around for the biggest, strong-looking man he can find, then doesn't so much asking for help but tells them to help. I know that might come across as him being rude, but the authority which with he spoke was powerful. No one questioned him. They just got up to help, like it was their duty. People are amazing when it comes to an emergency like that. The bigger guys started working on lifting someone out of their seat, pulling them to the middle of the row, and carrying them towards the back of the plane. I had a glimpse of the person as they passed, an elderly-looking Asian man. He was as pale as a ghost, completely unresponsive by the looks of it. I looked back to see the doctor performing CPR on the guy after they laid him down, working on chest compressions, blowing into his mouth. That was distressing enough, but one of the big dudes started yelling, Come on, buddy. Come back to us. Open your eyes, man. You could hear the distress in the man's voice when it sank that the guy was dead, that he had no pulse, and that he was not coming back at all. Some of the passengers were crying, others were praying. It was one of the most intense situations I had ever been in in my entire life. So it is at this point that I look back to see that the flight attendants had produced a body bag from somewhere on the plane. I didn't even know they had those things aboard. I mean, it was exactly the kind of thing you normally see on some Vietnam movie. This big plastic looking bag with a zipper running up the middle. The doctor and the bigger guys help put the Asian man inside before zipping it up, while some of the flight attendants start reshuffling people for some reason. They move everyone behind me further up the plane, asking a few if they'd like impromptu business class and first class upgrades. But no one asks me, so in the end, it's me with a row of window seats to myself, with two free rows behind me, and then it's the back of the plane. I really should have seen it coming, and asked the attendants to move me too, but the whole thing was so intense and everyone had so much to deal with 
that I decided it was better just not to make a fuss. But like I said, when it dawned on me what was about to happen, I really wish I hadn't been so reasonable about the whole thing. Because suddenly, the guys are lifting the armrest on the second row behind me, leaning the seats back a little before hoisting the poor Asian man's body up and lying it on the seats. I can't even describe how incredibly uneasy the whole thing made me. There was no smell. I mean, the body was fresh. But just the idea that maybe less than two or three meters behind me lay the body of a dead man. It was so impossible to really relax, and now it was even more impossible to not feel anxious. I tried to ignore it, but as you can imagine, that's just impossible. I found myself looking back between the seats every so often, and just peering back at the shiny material, and just knowing that poor guy inside is without a pulse. It was horrific. On the way off, a flight attendant took my name down and told me I'd be entitled to money off my next flight for being so nice and quiet about the whole thing, that it hardly ever happened, and that they were so, so sorry that it had to be me that the body was nearest to. It was the least they could have done, but honestly, I don't feel like I want to fly again. Not for a long, long time to come. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true horror stories from Japan. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to slap that like button as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it in the algorithm, and that helps the swamp grow its ever-expanding waters. If you want to make sure you don't miss any new episodes, be sure to turn on those notifications as I upload them multiple times a week on all things natural and supernatural. Don't forget to also subscribe, it really helps us out. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. You can also submit it at r slash thedarkswamp on reddit, I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. If you're on the go, but don't have YouTube premium, but still want to download your favorite scary stories from the swamp, you can absolutely do so entirely free from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. Thank you as always for listening to the end if you did. I'd love to know what story was your favorite. As always, it helps me pick better ones in the future. I hope you guys are enjoying these longer videos. I really am doing my best to make these videos as long as possible. Hopefully, you guys will send in some good stories here so we can keep this trend going. I really appreciate you all. If you guys made it to the very end, don't forget to comment the code word, which is backwards clock. I love to see your comments. Confusing everybody who doesn't make it to the end is always fun. And I will pin the funniest one at the top, as always.